Well, brethren and sisters and young people, it's nice to be into our class again on the Song of Solomon. Um, just before we do start, um, we've got some extra copies of, of notes here. Perhaps, Pete, you could um, do the honours. Uh, those that haven't got a set of notes and would like a set, um, perhaps put their hand up. And also, there's copies of the rose done in Hebrew. If anybody would like that, put their hand up as well. And Pete can make sure he got it. We've just got a, a copy of that. Um, I think, I think most of you have seen the. Um, good. Um, well, I think most of you have seen the copy of the um, the rose that was done in Israel. Um, that uh, is done out in the Hebrew language. Uh, there's also some some more co- copies, uh, some more folders here to keep the notes in with Bible class written on it that uh, John gave out of his class uh, is anybody hasn't got those and won't some keep their notes in um, right um, one front of Wally everybody got the notes part of it all worked out no hands up for the rose Okay. All right. Who have we got out there? We've got a couple out there. Uh, I have got a chart in here that I'm going to throw up in a moment, so uh, which you won't be able to see out there. Um, you might want to just take down some details on it. Um, <clears throat> All right, just taking our, our minds back to our um, to our former class. Um, we spent all of last class in just getting a feel for the book itself and to dispel in the minds of any and the thoughts of any um, anything uh, about the book that they find perhaps unpleasant uh, we'd understand probably if they felt that way it was through misunderstanding of the book uh, we paraphrased our comments of course with the, um, with the words of scripture that um, uh, the, all the words of God are pure and therefore thy servant loveth them and we picked up of course the words of the New Testament as well that um, um, to the pure all things are pure and therefore the words we're dealing with are pure and we went on to show how that that is very very true of the Song of Solomon although at first glance sometimes we wonder about the terminology of the book yet when we had a look at it we found that it was mainly because of well a couple of factors one the, the uh, customs of the, um, of the day the use or the terminology in Hebrew which was important to them and we perhaps wouldn't pick up today and, uh, and thirdly of course we noticed that there were even some cases of, of bad translation which had the translators done it differently would have helped us so we went through the Song of Solomon very briefly and picked out some of those things uh, to get a feel for the book now tonight we're going to sort of continue on in that theme and we may in fact not get to the first chapter because there's a couple of other points relating to the book too which I think are important for us to, uh, to follow up 
I want to consider them in this order. I've got them here on the list. They're the ones that I had on the list from last week and uh, we didn't get to. And that was some consideration of the author himself, of Solomon, because that's important to the book. It's the reason that many go astray with the book. The Jews uh, themselves and several of their brethren who write notes on the Song of Solomon have gone astray by suggesting that Song of Solomon is not the, an appropriate one to represent Christ. Therefore, they don't see the, uh, him in the book as representing Christ and they come up with all sorts of theories to get round that. We're going to show that he is very, very appropriate, uh, appropriately the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to emphasise that by looking at a chapter we know all too well, 2 Samuel 7, and show you that, in fact, 2 Samuel 7 is Solomon. And the emphasis is Solomon, not Christ. Christ is the one we believe that's emphasised in the First of Chronicles, chapter 17, where the other that promise is related again. But it has, of course, we know, a dual application to Solomon and to Christ. But in 2 Samuel 7, we'll pick up that the inference is very much to, to Solomon because he is, of course, the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're going to have a look at that double application of the book that we mentioned last time, um, that uh, we mentioned that there is the Jewish and the Gentile aspect. I'm going to go through each one of those, uh, or, or some of the points, and you can mark them straight into your notes to show the comparison, to show how that the book definitely is divided into those two sections. Remember, we mentioned it in passing last time, and we particularly went to the uh, seventh chapter, um, to the, sorry, the fifth chapter and the seventh song to, to show that distinction between the Gentile a Jewish bride moving into the Gentile bride. But we'll go back and have a little bit more detail on that just to, uh, to highlight in your own minds, as it did in mine when I did the study on that, just how clearly there is this distinction between the two parts of the book. And um, then have a look at just quickly how Solomon... Uh, in the Song of Solomon brings together a subject that's a favourite of his and while this chapter deals with, with the period of espousal Sol Solomon has actually written about the time of marriage he's written about the, uh, uh, the, um, the wedding itself so we'll consider that and then finally a few comments uh, on Hosea and its application to the Song of Solomon because on surface it seems to have the same theme but as we pointed out last time the theme may be the same but the bride is different Okay, so back to our author, Solomon. Now, as we said, Solomon was one who, who brethren have made mistakes and said, well, Solomon with his thousand wives wouldn't be a very good type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we pointed out before, when we remember we emphasised that to the pure, all things are pure, you can look at Solomon's wives two ways, in a pure way, that is, in a, in a sense, not that they were ever acceptable, that position was ever acceptable to God, but there were reasons uh, that he had a thousand wives other than the one that immediately comes to mind and it's because brethren's minds stray onto that which is impure that they say that therefore he had a thousand wives uh, with an impure motive now that I don't believe is true he had those wives because for one they were of course many of them given to him by embassies from, from the different countries uh, that is clear in scripture and the other point which we have to bear in mind is of course we pointed out that amazing fact that with a thousand wives and concubines he only had one son so he was a man who was very very much trying to have a son and an heir and many of those thousand wives and concubines um, were there for that reason um, but in the very fact that he had many wives makes him appropriate for the Lord Jesus Christ in this context because the bride here is a multitudinous bride, it's the ecclesia. And therefore what more appropriate than a man who in fact had a multitudinous bride? 
he had a thousand wives and concubines. And here is a man presented to us in this song who has a wife and who has virgins without number. And so here is his wives and his concubines representing the ecclesia of God. And remember we pointed out that the bride herself represents the ecclesia, the virgins, the bridesmaids represent um, us individually within that ecclesia. But a very appropriate, appropriate one because in fact he had uh, so many wives. I want you to turn with me to the second of Samuel chapter 12 because here we read that in fact Samuel was a very special boy as far as God himself was concerned and it's something that we perhaps overlook when looking at, uh, at Solomon. We tend to perhaps emphasise sometimes the negative aspect of his life but God makes it clear what his view of Solomon is and in the second of Samuel chapter 12 and uh, reading of his birth in verse 24 David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Of course, this is right into our readings, isn't it, at the moment? David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and Yahweh loved him. Incredible statement, isn't it? And Yahweh loved him. That's Yahweh's assessment of the son of Solomon. But it goes even further, because then Yahweh sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. And the word Jedediah, or Yedediah, as you see in your margin, means beloved of Yahweh. Now, therefore, of course, we have an indication of what sort of, what sort of person this was going to be. Yahweh, who knows the beginning from the end, is not going to name someone beloved of Yah and say, I love the boy, if in fact he was to be in his life a rotter, uh, was to be one who didn't live Bible principles in his life. Yahweh gave him that title, My Beloved. And of course, as such again, he is very, very good, a very appropriate type of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom God himself said in the New Testament, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's really the New Testament equivalent of the name Yedidiah, Yahweh's beloved. And um, it's a name that is to feature, in fact, in the book of Song of Solomon, because the very word for love that is used throughout the Song of Solomon, or one of the words for love, there's three words, but one of those words is the word Yod, Yed, from which you get both the name David and you get the name Jedidiah. They're both from the same root word, the word love. Um, so it's, uh, uh, as we said, a very appropriate title um, to, be, um, uh, to be given to him. Now, as far as... Um, uh, We'll go on to his wife, this wife of Egypt, uh, his bride from Egypt, which we suggest is the bride of the book of Song of Solomon. We'll deal with that in a moment. But before we get to that, Solomon in the second of Samuel. Turn up second of Samuel and also turn up first of Chronicles chapter 17 and put, your, put a marker in perhaps first of Chronicles 17. And we're going to go between these two chapters. And I want to just show you something that... that in a study I did some time ago, I appreciate it, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate when we hear brethren quoting quite uh, glibly Second Samuel 7 and the promise given unto David. In fact, I've heard brethren from our platform saying, say this has nothing to do with Solomon. Uh, it has everything to do with Solomon. And in fact, we could in fact say that it has more to do with Solomon than with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another reference to that promise which has to do particularly with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just summing up in Second Samuel, and our young ones will be able to pick this up because you've done it in Sunday school and we should all be aware of Second Samuel, just picking out some of the phrases um, that uh, 
we would find in the second of Samuel 7 that we would say therefore have to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't relate to, to, um, to Solomon well we pick up let's read from verse 12 in the second of Samuel 7 although we know the words well but we'll read them um, in verse 12 uh, when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom so the first thing is he was going to set up his seed now that very word set up is actually used in the Second Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 10 uh, by Solomon himself when talking of what he had accomplished as we might as well turn all these up I think just to prove our point because I think as we go into this you're going to be quite astounded at just um, how important this is Second Chronicles chapter 6 and at verse 10 um, we have the um, the words of, uh, of Solomon himself as he's speaking to the people and he says Yahweh therefore hath performed his word that he had spoken for I am risen up in the room of David my father and am set, that's our word on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised and have built the house for the name of Yahweh God of Israel now there's several statements in there but the first one is that this word set is actually the word that's used there it has everything to do with Solomon now, <clears throat> so we've got a word that immediately links us with Solomon there. It would be appropriate, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. It would be appropriate to him. But we're going to find in Second Samuel there are some words here that are not appropriate to Christ but are to Solomon, distinctly to him. But that one would be, of course, appropriate to him as well. But it's interesting that it's a word that's actually used by Solomon himself. So he identifies with the promise where God says, I'll sit up. The next phrase is probably the most important one in the book and the promise he says it will be out of my bowels now in the first of kings 8 verse 19 a different word is used but the same idea is put where of course uh, God, is, God tells David that it would be from between his loins that one would be born who was to be king now the significance of this is this point and the veteran is um, what's the name here um, uh, your dad your husband um, uh, Lance is Lance here is he is um, he may, may be able to bear this out or otherwise and perhaps Sarah will too the phrase out of thy bowels is a phrase in the Hebrew which only relates to the next in line you see when we go to Chronicles we're going to find that the term actually says one of thy sons which is a term that relates to family but this term is always used actually of the next one in line and if you look up every reference of that word in scripture and I'll give you that word in a moment I've got another chart um, you'll find that it always relates to the next in line. You take, for instance, in the case of, of Abraham, when he's concerned about whether Ishmael is, is his seed, and he says, no, Ishmael is not, it must be one who will come out of thy loins, saying it has to literally be your own son. That's the phrase that's here used, and it would be understood by a Jew as referring only to Solomon, not to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to... But, of course, we could extend that by extension and say, well, Christ is, and we know he was, a son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. But that phrase is very specific in the Hebrew. Next we have the phrase in verse 13, he will build a house for my name. Now, we just read that in Chronicles, but the same thing in 1 Kings 8, verse 17 to 18, is Solomon says time and time again, the house I am building is for thy name. The house I am building is for thy name. Now, it's significant that's never used of the temple, the future temple. It is those who reside in the temple and the people who will bear the name. 
The name in itself, scripturally speaking, is not linked to the house itself. This one was to bear the name of Yahweh. But that phrase, a house for my name, comes straight out of there and is used on about three or four occasions by Solomon when talking about the house that he built. It then goes on and says, and I'll establish his house forever. Now, I've heard it said, and you may have thought yourself, I say, well, therefore, that's got to be David. That's got to be Christ, not, not uh, Solomon. Now, of course, all we have to do is know that the word ever in Scripture speaks of an age, a period. And, in fact, it's the exact phrase, straight out of 1 Chronicles 28, verse 7, of, the, the, of Solomon's kingdom. In fact, we can turn it up, just in case you have any doubts on that. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 7 the blessing upon Solomon and keep your Bible open here at 1 Chronicles 28 because we'll come back to that verse 7 moreover I will establish his kingdom forever this is talking to David when he's talking about Solomon there's no doubt about it because he says in verse 5 out of all my sons for Yahweh had given me many sons he had chosen Solomon my son to sit upon my throne then in verse 7, moreover, I'll establish his kingdom forever. Because the word means for an age. And it was to be established for the kingdom age, for that kingdom age. When we, we can relate, of course, the word to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it'd be a different age. So we can use that same word in the Hebrew relating to any particular age. It might have been the Mosaic age. Here it's the kingdom age, um, the kingdom of Israel on earth age. The millennium, the kingdom, would be spoken of by that same word. That's another age. But it's just proving the point that we can't just glibly say, well, if it says it'll be established forever, it couldn't be Solomon. Well, God said to Solomon, I'll establish your kingdom forever. Yeah. Um, in the context of that verse, he actually is reiterated, to be reiterating yeah. the promise that was yeah, made to Solomon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the verse before that, and here's our next point here, that I've heard this again quoted and said, well, look, he says of this one in Second Samuel 7, I'll be his father, he'll be my son. That had to be Christ. Well, go back one verse in First Chronicles 28. We know this is Solomon. And he said unto me, Solomon, my son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. No question as to who God used those terms of. He used them of Solomon. So it's quite appropriate in the second of Samuel 7 that it's relating to Solomon. Um, this is the interesting one, of course, as we all know. Once you come into second of Samuel 7, we come to this verse... Uh, if you've got it open there, verse uh, 14, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, you come to this very interesting verse which causes some sort of problems. I will be his father, he shall be my son. We've seen that that's out of First Chronicles 28. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. And in order to get round that, as you probably know, we've gone to J.B. Phillips' translation. I think it's J.B. Phillips, isn't it? Have you only got... Adam Clark's translation now I don't know of anything else we use Adam Clark's translation for it's a shocking translation but it suits us on this occasion to do it now again those who know Hebrew probably know that it's not a question at all it's a statement in the Hebrew when he commits iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men now that couldn't apply to the Lord Jesus Christ he never committed iniquity the point is that when this promise is given in First Chronicles 17, that verse is left out. That word, whole phrase is left out because that's referring to Christ. This one in, is primarily referring to Solomon, who was to commit iniquity, and the kingdom was to be taken from him. So when he says, I will be, um, 
sorry, when he sins, that's the literal translation of that word there in the Hebrew, I will commit, in the, in the um, First Chronicles 28 and verse 9, he goes on, uh, God goes on to say to Solomon, if you commit iniquity, I'll take the kingdom away from you. And he says the same in the First of Kings 11 and verse 38. He says, as long as you, you are faithful, you'll be on the throne. But if you, if you, uh, if you uh, do not obey me, um, then, of course, the warning is that the kingdom will be taken from him. So he asked him to give service unto him in the, uh, uh, in the First of Chronicles 28 and verse 9. He says that he, he appeals to Solomon that he serve him in truth. The inference being, of course, if he didn't, that there would, uh, he would be punished. And he was, in fact, punished uh, for that which he did. And then he says at the end of that, uh, in Second Samuel 7, at the end of verse 14, his throne shall be established forever. And that's the word in Second Chronicles 1, verse 9, where uh, Solomon stands up before all the people and he says, I have now established the kingdom. Uh, the, uh, the kingdom. Sorry? It's actually verse 16. Oh, that's verse 16. All right, that should be verse 16. Um, in the Second of Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 9, that same word in the Hebrew is used by Solomon of the kingdom. He says, I have, in fulfilment of God's promise, I have established the kingdom. And that's the word that's used there. It's a different word again, by the way, which we'll find in, in Second of Samuel, in the First of Chronicles. Now, the other thing we should actually add to this list is another proof that's often used in verse 16, if you've got Second Samuel 7. Verse 16 goes on to say, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. And we use that, of course, as proof that it's Christ, because David would have been dead before Solomon actually took the throne. So therefore it's speaking of the resurrection and when David is in the kingdom and Christ is established. Well, the word thee is not there, it's me. And the authorised is the only translation that says before thee. Anybody got any other translations? It's before me. You got a translation, different translation there? Um, RSV, NIV, Jerusalem, Rotherham, uh, all say me. In fact, it, it has to be me, according to the Hebrew. Alan's got one there, I think. Second Samuel 7, verse 16. Alan? for me it's me uh, the authorised is the only one that says thee so it's not talking about resurrection at all it's talking about God overseering it and he was going to establish that kingdom ok so that all that does is dissolve in our minds that 2 Samuel 7 is exclusively Christ it has its, it has its first application to Solomon and then secondly it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ Really what we should be going doing, I believe, is going to First Chronicles 17 and using that as our proof of the promise relating to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of you may have heard this before and it's a very true statement that Chronicles is God's view of the kingdom. You know, we often wonder why we've got the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. But there's no doubt when you look at it that Chronicles brings out the spiritual application. And so often when you're going through the period of the Kings... The record of the kings is straightforward. It's Chronicles that brings out the spiritual aspect. It's God's record of the kingdom. It's therefore appropriate that First Chronicles 17, when talking of that promise, lays emphasis upon one who would not be Solomon, but one who would follow on. Now, we've picked up the main words 
And we've actually given you here all of the, the Hebrew numbers if you want to write them down. Um, you can perhaps do it on the back of one of your sheets that you've got there on, uh, on the Book of Song of Solomon or something because it's well worth looking at just in the light of what we're talking about. But here it shows the greatness of the Lord of Solomon as a type of Christ. He was so close that God could use him as a type. Now, in First Chronicles 17, and these are the main differences in words, when God says that he will make a house for my name in 2 Samuel 7, the word which means to, it's used um, of the, the um, uh, temple itself, um, the, the temple here is a temple that Solomon built, by the way, not the temple of the future. That word make is used of the temple that Solomon built. Whereas back in First Chronicles 17, the word is build, which is the word banar, which has the spiritual application of a household being built, a family. Now that's obviously the import that we want to get out of this promise. It's not so much that he was going to build a building, a temple, but that Christ was going to come. There was a house going to be built. Is that and the number in Strong's right? Yep, that's the number in Strong's, yes. Oh, right, sorry. Okay, the word build... Um, build in First Chronicles 17 he will build me a house is, is number 1129 it's the word banar or that we of course would um, which we have been comes from ben the word for family um, it can actually be translated as built or be used of the building of a family Solomon uses that way in Psalm 127 verse 1 when he says except Yahweh build the house, they labour in vain that build it. It's the word banar, which can double as either a, a, a physical house, um, a, a house that we would build out of bricks and mortar, or a family. Whereas when we come to Second Samuel 7, the word is make a house, and the number in Strong's is 6213, it's the word asar, and it's literally of bricks and mortar. It's not used of a family never used in this sense of a spiritual sense. It's only ever used in a natural sense of building a building. We come down through the first of Chronicles 17. Well, perhaps we'll go to first, second Samuel 7 first because we, we're familiar with those words. Um, he goes on and says that thou would sleep with thy fathers. The word sleep in second Samuel 7 is number 7901 and it literally means that. It means to lay down, go to sleep. So he was going to lay down and go to sleep. The, the, the word that we would use of death. But when we go to First Chronicles 17, he says, you must go to your fathers. The word go is 3212, the word yalak, and it means to walk after. To walk after. In fact, it's used both of a person in this sense of going after someone, or it can even be used as someone walking along the street. They don't have to be dead. But you see it's got spiritual applications here because it's the word in Daniel 12 verse 1 when Daniel, when it's said of Daniel um, that... Um, uh, I'm trying to get the words of Daniel 12. Go thy way. Go thy way until the end. Um, it's not actually 12 verse 1, is it? It would be in chapter... Anyway, it's, yeah, it's chapter 11 at the end, isn't it? Or chapter 12. Um, but it's, go thy way until the end. Uh, it's after the quote that says, uh, many shall run to and fro, um, and knowledge shall be increased. Then it says, but thou, Daniel, go thy way. Now, that was talking, of course, of Daniel dying, because he died that year. We know that from the record in Daniel. He died that year. So it's God's way of saying you're going to die. 
But the interesting thing is that word's always used of a person who's going to be resurrected. Whenever it's used, when you go through your concordance and look it up as relating to death, it's always in the context of someone who will be in the kingdom. So they're walking to the kingdom. Although they're dead, yet they go to the kingdom. And of course there's the idea that, that with men like, um, like uh, Solomon, men like David, men like Daniel, that they leave, as it were, footprints to follow. They have walked a certain path. Although they're dead, they're walking in the sense that they give us a path to walk on. Stand in thy lot until the end of the days. Stand in thy lot until the end of the days, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's 12 verse 1, isn't it? 12 verse 9 and 13. 12 verse 9 and verse 13. Alright. Um, <coughs> what's one that actually says, go thy way? 12. That's 12. 12 verse 12. Is it? 12 verse 9. Okay, 12 verse 9 is that word yalak. Uh, the point being that it's relating, of course, to... Um, uh, to to the fact I believe that if we're looking for a proof that Dan, that uh, David was going to be resurrected that's the word rather than using Second Samuel 7 which says before thee which is not there anyway that word there would prove in the Hebrew that he was going to be in the kingdom because it's related to people who will rise again out of the grave in the Second Samuel 7 then we go on and it says it will be out of thy bowels we've already mentioned this one the word bowels is the word 4578, the word mia, and in fact it, it refers to the soft part. It's, we're going to pick it up in the Song of Solomon because it means the emotions, um, the soft part of the body, but it's translated as womb in scripture, the soft part, the, the womb, and is the feminine word really. It's speaking of the womb of a woman. Uh, Genesis 15 verse 4 was the one that I referred to where God says to, to uh um, uh, to Abraham, no, it's not Ishmael, but one who shall proceed out of thy bowels. Ruth 1.11 is again the use of it. Remember from our camp, Ruth says, turns to her two daughters and says, have I any more children in my womb? And there's the word that is here. Um, and she was speaking of that. She wasn't talking of children down the line. She's talking of immediate children that would be born to her and it's always used in that context in scripture. But when you go across to First Chronicles 17, it says, that the one who comes would be of thy sons. And there's our word Ben, 11.21, and that is the word that relates to children, children in a family. And of course when we talk of the children of Israel, it's the word Ben. So it's an extensive family, a word totally appropriate to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come in the line of David. That word is not appropriate to Christ who was not the next in line to David. So that word is far more appropriate. Interesting way in which First Samuel two, uh, First Chronicles rather, uh, makes the emphasis upon whose kingdom and whose throne it will be. So when you come down through Second Samuel seven to verse thirteen, it says that um, he would sit on the throne of his kingdom. But when it comes to First Chronicles seventeen, it's the throne belongs to the one sitting upon it. It is his throne. So there's an emphasis there upon the throne which would be which would be far more applicable and appropriate to the Lord Jesus Christ what's than the, what's the verse in the first Chronicles seventeen verse twelve. Um, where do we get to? Twelve. What's that? Yeah, his throne. That's right. All right. So his throne. Is the, is the emphasis there. The, 
in the same verse, verses which were 13, in verse 13 of uh, 2nd of Samuel 7, he will build a house for my name. And we picked up that point that in the 1st of Kings 3, 1st of Kings 5, and on several other occasions, that phrase is specifically used of the temple that Solomon built. It's not a phrase, for instance, used as we would expect perhaps in Ezekiel when it talks of the temple. Uh, but it's used in the case of, Sol- of Solomon particularly. Verse 13, if he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men. It, of course, is deleted completely in in um, in First Chronicles. First Chronicles 17 doesn't have those words in there at all. It speaks nothing of him um, missing the mark of sinning. Whereas, of course, in in um, in Second Samuel uh, 7 and verse 14, uh, he will be chastened. And of course, we've got First uh, Kings 11 verse 38 again, where God says to him, uh, to Solomon, that he was to be faithful. Otherwise, of course, the kingdom was to be taken from him. In the second of Samuel 7, at verse 15, um, it is called thine house, that's David, remember. So he says, David's house and David's kingdom. But in first of Samuel 7, first Chronicles 17, it's my, Yahweh's house and Yahweh's kingdom. See the difference in the, in the emphasis? This was David's kingdom. This was David's throne and it was to go. But this is Yahweh's kingdom. Although, of course, we know the term is used in the Old Testament that uh, David sat upon the throne of Yahweh, um, but nevertheless, it's, of course, more applicable to the kingdom age, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, whereas in Second Samuel 7, because the emphasis is on Solomon, then it becomes David's throne. David's throne, David's house, David's kingdom, David's throne. The word thy is used there. Whereas here it's my house and his throne. The emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ on God's, in God's kingdom. The other interesting thing is in the first of Chronicles 17 and verse 14 that there's an added phrase that I will settle him. I will settle him. Um, the word is 5975. It's the word amad and it means to stand and that's where, of course, Daniel 12.1 comes in um, because um, there's... I have got the right quote here, have I, this time, about stand? No, that's the same one. It should be verse 9. I'll stand in thy lot. Where does it say that? I've probably got the wrong quote in 12 because 12 verse 1 is about the coming of... Um, um, there yeah, is, is uh, verse 13. Right, so it's verse 13 there. I'll stand in thy lot. So in other words, it's a reference again to the kingdom age particularly, but it's again a reference to the fact that Christ will stand. And we've done this in, in Teacher Gully in the, um, in the Ephesians class recently, that of course Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father until he stands when God makes him his enemies, gets rid of his enemies. So stand is the appropriate word for Christ when he establishes the kingdom. And so it's appropriate that it's found in the First of Chronicles 17. Now, finally, what have I got down to? Verse 14. Have we got all that? I can come back to it in a minute. Continuing on, just finishing off those verses, those verses. In the first of Samuel, uh, second of Samuel 7, sorry, the word kingdom is different to the word in Chronicles. So all the words are different. You know, you read it and it's exactly the same promise, but it's not. There's different words and different inferences. Now, the word kingdom that's used in second of Samuel 7, 
the word which is 4467, the word mamlakar, mamlakar, or something like that. Uh, no, it's law core, isn't it? If it's like that, mam law core. Um, it's never used of God's kingdom. It's used of the kingdoms of men, like it's used in Daniel of the kingdoms of men. Yet when he says in Daniel chapter 2 that God will set up a kingdom, it's not this word, it's that word. That's a word that relates to the kingdom of God in the future. This word never relates to the kingdom of God in the future at all. Never used of the future kingdom. But that word certainly is. So in first of Chronicles 17, the word kingdom is 4438, which is the word Malkuth, and it's used of the future constantly in the Old Testament. And I've got some quotes there. Psalm 45 verse 6, which is, the, I've put that there because of course it parallels with Song of Solomon because it's, this, it's the uh, description of the marriage of Solomon to, to Pharaoh's daughter. Psalm 103 verse 19 and Psalm 145, it's used there three times. Verse 11, verse 12 and verse 13, the word kingdom is always used in the context of the future kingdom. And finally, of course, we've got Daniel 2.44 because we know that word so well where it says that in the days of these kings will God set up a kingdom. That's this word here, Malkuth. But throughout that chapter where it talks about the kingdom of men, it's this word here, Mamluku, Luku or whatever it is, Lukor. All right, so the word kingdoms are important there. And it says in the book, both accounts that they'll be established, but the word again is different. So in 2 Samuel 7, the word established um, is a word that had its fulfilment in the time of Solomon because he uses that word. It's at 3559 and he says that I have fulfilled the promise that was made unto my father. And it's in those two quotations there. The word means to be sure and it's translated sure there in um, 1 Kings 11 verse 36. So at least twice Solomon uses that word of his establishment of the kingdom but in the first of uh, Chronicles 17 it's a different word it's the word 5975 which was the word that we looked at earlier which means to settle and it means to stand so it's a different word again and of course is, is again an appropriate phrase in first of Chronicles 17 to relate to the future that the kingdom of God that kingdom of God will stand forever so there we have it so all that really does is I suppose two things one is perhaps gives us a little lesson in being a bit glib sometimes about scriptural quotes unless we look at them I think we can be very glib when we talk of 2 Samuel 7 I, I definitely it's got its application to Christ there's no shadow of a doubt about that but we've got to be careful when we say well it can't be Solomon because it says I'll be his father or it can't be Solomon because it says it will be forever or it can't be Solomon because David will stand before him none of those things are true according to, to, to the scriptures when you look at them so we stick to the fact that it has a double application with I think the second of Samuel 7 having a greater emphasis on Solomon then it's obvious application to Christ um, whereas first of Chronicles 17 is the chapter that we have I believe it goes the other way and the first emphasis is undoubtedly upon Christ and secondly much of it could apply uh, to Solomon so that's how it seems to me but above it all it proves I believe the greatness of Solomon that he was one that God could actually use as a type of his own son now of course Christ himself was to say in the New Testament when speaking of himself he says the greater than Solomon is here 
And the very fact that he would use that quote, I haven't got it listed here, I was looking for it before where that is actually said. Oh, Matthew 12, is it? I have got it here, I think. Matthew 12, verse 43. Um, that, um, that Christ was using Solomon in this context. Um, it shows the, the greatness of Solomon. Yes, it's, um, it's Matthew 12 and verse 42. The Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the outermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And so Christ elevates Solomon in, in, uh, in that way by showing us that, uh, that he compares himself to him. No point, of course, in the words of Christ to compare himself to someone that was... Uh, of no value in comparison so he takes someone that he can compare with and Solomon is the one that he takes um, Christ was several times to refer to Solomon um, if you, while we're in Matthew Matthew chapter 6 he makes these, this interesting statement about mammon serving two masters um, and he says in uh, Matthew 6 and verse 25 Therefore I say unto you take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink nor yet for your body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment behold the fowls of the air they sow not neither do they reap nor gather into barns yet your heavenly father feedeth them are ye not much better than they which of you taking thought can add one cubit unto his statue and why take ye thought for raiment Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now you see what he's done. He's picked up the term of lilies of the field out of the Song of Solomon. That's a term straight out of the Song of Solomon. And he said that even uh, Solomon, in all his glory, feed the lilies. He's gone down to feed the lilies. Christ picks that up here and says take no thought what you shall eat or what you shall drink because God will look after you. So there's Christ's explanation of what it means. Christ was in the field feeding the lilies. He was keeping the lilies alive and tendering them. The lilies represented the ecclesia. And the beloved representing Christ was looking after the ecclesia. That's exactly what Christ says in Matthew 6. Don't give no thought. God will look after you. It's exactly the same theme. And if we wonder why... Uh, lilies are introduced the garden of lilies in, in Song of Solomon Christ tells us why because it represents our dependence upon God we'll pick that up when we come to the second song and, and lilies are introduced but it's a further further reference to the fact that Solomon was in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ at least on those two occasions he refers to Solomon so the greatness of Solomon in my mind is, is undisputed the argument rages as to when in when he went astray at what stage in his life and did he come back to God and so forth well you know I believe that the answer comes from scripture itself and the greatness of Solomon that's referred to here and the man who could write that um, uh, bring up a child in the way he should go and um, he shall never depart from it What's it? when he is old when he is old he will never depart from it uh, would to me be the reference again of the position that Solomon was in when he finally died one who understood and was living the principles of the truth but certainly a very fitting type now what of this this queen she's the daughter of Pharaoh we suggest 
Now the reason why we suggest that the queen, the the um, sorry, the bride in Song of Solomon is the daughter of Pharaoh, I can give you three particular uh, things that we could um, mark down in your notes there, perhaps across the top of your notes, as uh, to the bride in Song of Solomon. You've got your set of notes there. The bride equals the daughter of Pharaoh. The three particular proofs that I would use in chapter 1 and verse 6 she talks about herself being black that's the first point she says I am black and they said no you are comely so she calls herself black in chapter 1 verse 6 in chapter 1 and verse 4 she talks about being in the chambers of the king there was only one bride of Solomon that lived in his chambers and that was the daughter of Pharaoh she was the only one that lived with him she was the only one that lived in his chambers and in fact if you've I've got a, a picture I'll, I'll perhaps duplicate it off sometime for you there's an artist's impression of the, the house of Solomon that he built and it, you come in through the main door and it divides into two identical buildings side by side one for him one for the daughter of Pharaoh and that's in fact listed in scripture I'll give you the quotes in a moment so it's therefore fitting that this bride speaks of being brought into his chambers that could only ever apply if it be based upon a wife of Solomon the only one who was in his chambers um, scripturally was the, the daughter of Pharaoh and in chapter 1 and verse 17 she speaks of her house and his house being identical she says our houses in chapter 1 and verse 17 our houses uh, the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. Now you notice if you've got your notes there on your second page where I've got chapter two, chapter 1 and verse 17 house is in singular in the authorised version but in the Hebrew it's in plural. So it really should read the beams of our houses. So she wasn't in the same house but she had a house identical to his. So the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters fir. And in fact that's exactly what Solomon did. He built an identical house for her that he did to for himself. Now to prove that, put down the first of Kings chapter three and verse one. If you look up the first of Kings chapter three and verse one, we are told that um, that he firstly took this bride of the daughter of Pharaoh, he took her into his own house and she was there till he built her a house identical to his own. First of Kings, second of Kings, first of Kings three and verse one. And Solomon made affinity, and it seems this was his first wife too, by the way, his first bride. Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So he brought her into to his house, uh, into, the, into um, the city of David. Nothing said of any of the other brides that he did that. So she was brought into his chambers firstly and he did that until he'd made an end of building his own house. And when building his own house, he built her a house identical to his own. Now where that is, I'm not sure. I thought I had it in the margin. Uh, oh yes, chapter 7 and verse 8. So First of Kings 7 and verse 8. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was like work. Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. 
So he made a house identical for himself and for this bride. Nothing, none of the other brides are in that privileged position. So we suggest on the basis of those points that uh, the bride the, of uh, uh, Song of Solomon was based upon Pharaoh's daughter. Not that it was literally the same. What we've got to see in the Song of Solomon is this, that he wrote a romantic story based on what his marriage should have been, not necessarily what it was. The same as if any brother would get up and paint a glowing picture of marriage when in fact that's not always duplicated in her own life. I generally think mine is, but I'm saying about most of them. <laughs> it's never duplicated exactly, yet we talk of the ideal. Now that's what Solomon's doing here. Don't run away with the idea that the marriage with Pharaoh's daughter was identically according to this book. It wasn't. But he romantically, like a romantic Jew, took that as a base and brought out a beautiful spiritual lesson as to, to the, the, um, the Christ and his bride based upon his love for that girl and he developed it in very, very glowing terms. Terms which, as we pointed out last time, we find hard to, to sometimes come to grips with but it's only because of our terminology. I mean, if an Australian boy gets engaged to a girl, you know, uh, and Robbie's just getting engaged, so I go to Robbie and say, well, what's your new wife like he'd probably say oh she's alright you know she's corker or something but if you went to a Jew you'd have to stand there for an hour while he told you about the colour of her eyes and the way she deports herself and her words are sweet and all this and you have to go through all this to listen to they over exaggerate in that sense uh, and that's what comes out in the Song of Solomon it's very beautiful in the, in the way in which the Jewish aspect comes out you know they say of a Jew if you ask him the time uh, ask him the time and he tells you how to mend a watch um, uh, everything gets sort of protracted out and that's exactly what happens in the Song of Solomon it's a beautiful exaggerated view and uh, it's exaggerated so that we can bring spiritual lessons from it so it wasn't literally the daughter there every time we read that we should see the daughter of Pharaoh but it was based upon his love for that girl and uh, that seems apparent from, um, from these references in the Song of Solomon just a point in passing because some of you may be from more familiar with the, uh, the Song of Solomon than others and some use again um, an argument that the word black in, uh, in Song of Solomon 1 verse 6 where she says I am black but comely the word really means swarthy or dark and not black and therefore wouldn't be the daughter of Pharaoh well again it's, it's an unspiritual way of looking at things because all one has to do is pick up a concordance and look up the word black and you get the ravens that came to feed um, um, the larger they were black same word well were they swarthy or were they black uh, when they came out of Egypt and darkness covered the land and it was black that's the same word here was it swarthy or was it black so brethren who make those sort of comments and they were brethren that made those comments don't look at scripture they take a word and perhaps pick up a concordance and get a, a glossary of the word but Paul tells us, of course, in Corinthians to interpret spiritual things in spiritual words, to compare scripture with scripture. And that's how you come to conclusions. It's like we've just done with the Second of Samuel and First of Corinthians Chronicles. How could you come to those conclusions without doing a bit of study and without comparing scripture? You need to compare. Now, in this case, I said there's a simple exercise. You look up the word black in the concordance and find where it's used. And uh, it's used of black, black. So it's a very appropriate word for the, uh, for the daughter of, um, of Pharaoh. All right, now the double application of the book was the next thing we were going to look at. The double application of the book comes out very, very beautifully in the Song of Solomon. And if you've again got your notes ready, you can perhaps highlight these in a colour or something. Just the, 
for so when someone says to you, oh, you know, I don't know about this dual aspect of the book, this Jewish-Gentile aspect, well, here's a couple you can just throw at them, and you'll probably find more, and we will find more as we go through the book. Chapter 1 and verse 5. I am black, is our word, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedah, as the curtains of Solomon. Now there's a phrase that doesn't occur again in the rest of the book. A direct identification with Israel and with Solomon. Alright, it doesn't sound much on its surface, but you'll see what the power of this is as we build up this case. Here's a reference which would be inappropriate to the Gentile bride, wouldn't it? I mean, it's obvious. We have no connection with the with curtains of Solomon, but very appropriate when you think that this is the first part of the book and it's dealing with the Jewish bride. Verse 9 how more appropriate can you get for the Jewish bride than this? I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. We're taken right back to Israel coming out of Egypt. And in fact, remember last time we told you how the, the Song of Solomon is chronology, chronologically set out. And here they are being called out of Egypt as his bride. And uh, they were called out as his bride. So much so, even when he came to Mara put the test of, of um, jealousy upon them. You know, the law of jealousy against the bride. If a man heard that his wife was being unfaithful, he was to take her and mix water with the dust that was in the uh, tabernacle. And if it was bitter, she was guilty. And here was Israel having come out of Egypt. The first place they come to is Mara and the water is bitter. And Yahweh says, I'm going to forget that. You've been unfaithful to me in Egypt. But I'll forget that. We'll overlook that. I'll heal you and make you clean. So he proved there at Mara that she was his bride. So here we have the phrase Pharaoh's chariots, very appropriate of the the bride that um, is represented here as Israel. Chapter 2 and verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. The word rose here, which is suggested by the way that uh, it is one form of crocus, it actually means to be formed from a bulb, but it's the word that's used of Israel. For instance, in Isaiah 35 and 1, that the desert shall blossom as the rose. And that's a specific prophecy of Israel. We use it extensively in a broad sense of how the world will be beautified. But in the context of Isaiah 35, that's a blessing upon Israel. And the rose is a symbol of Israel. And uh, uh, therefore, again, very appropriate that it should be in this first section. When we come across to verse 13 of chapter 2, we read that she is a fig tree. The groom is speaking of the bride here and he says she's like the fig tree put her forth her green leaves and the vines with tender grape give a good smell. So he's referring to her and some of the goodness he sees in her was like a fig tree when it puts forth green figs. The fig tree of course is a symbol of Israel. We doubt that. We go to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ was to curse the fig tree that was represented Israel. Now you know when you come in then to the to the Gentile section, she's not called a fig tree, she's called a palm tree and the palm tree of course is in uh, if you want to mark it down, is in chapter 8 and verse 1 when he's talking to the Gentile, when the Gentile bride is brought to our attention it says that she's like a palm tree, now where do we read of palms in scripture? Elam, the 70 palm trees have represented the nations it's a tree that specifically represented the nations in its first occurrence in scripture when they came out of Israel that's in chapter 8 and verse 1 is it? <coughs> no? ok I've put the wrong number here oh you're right Se- um, 7 verse 7 sorry 7 verse 7 
Thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters. Not of grapes, by the way, that's in italics, you'll notice, so it should be of dates, because dates come from a palm tree, not grapes. And again, that's significant, because dates here, is, of course, is, is again, we're going to find when we come to that, is a good symbol of the Gentiles. The Jew was, the, was wine, was the, the grape and the wine is always used of Israel. Dates, that dry fruit, represented Israel, represented the, the, uh, the nations. But there we've got a fig tree in the section that's dealing with the bride, uh, who is Jewish, and palm tree, identifying with Jew- Gentiles in the latter section. Back in chapter 2 and verse 14, O my dove, speaking again of the bride, thou art in the cleft of the rock in the secret places of the stairs. That word is, um, is used in Ezekiel 38 verse 20 of Israel when, when, they, when um, um, God comes down against the land of Israel. And in chapter 38 and verse 20, that word stairs is used. Better check what it's actually translated because I don't think it's stairs. Um, but it's a reference, of course, to the fact that Israel used to, and still do, I think, um, terrace their land. It means terraces. And uh, they terrace the land. They put down the retaining walls and there are steps in the land. And uh, so it's called the land of stairs a reference to definitely to the land of Israel again very appropriate here that it should be used in this section of the book because it's the Jewish bride that's being spoken of 38 and verse 20 says um, yeah the steep the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and the word steep places there is the word terrace or stairs that's used here so when stairs oh good so in, in the context of, of um, go coming down through the land of Israel and into Egypt, um, its effect will be upon the steep places that shall fall. And that's this word here. So it's a word that relates to Israel. Therefore, as we said, appropriate in this section of the book, not so appropriate in the second section of the book. In chapter 2, what's that? Chapter 2 and verse 14. Chapter 4 now, still into the Jewish bride section still in the first six songs in chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2 and we'll read these together Behold thou art fair this gain, if you've got it coloured in you'll know by now that this is the groom speaking of his bride Behold thou art fair my love Behold thou art fair thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are shorn which came up from the washing whereof every one beareth twins and none of them is barren among them. The two words that need to be underlined there is mount before Gilead there and the word shorn. And keeping your finger there if you go across to chapter 6 and verse 5 and 6 which is the Gentile section of the book and here's where it comes out very clearly that the book is very specific very specific when it's dealing with the Jewish and the Gentile section. So in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, you'll notice they're almost identical. And this is now the groom talking to the Gentile bride. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead, not Mount Gilead. Then it says, Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing. No mention of being shorn. Whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. Identical phrases, two words missing. And mount, of course, is the reference to Israel's elevated position. 
used throughout scripture of course of Israel as a great mountain behold give, give hero mountains and give hero earth uh, used in Psalm 72 of elevated position so mount is appropriate to Israel it's the first fruits or the first chosen of God and the other thing is of course the word shorn literally means to trim down to size and it's the word that's used of chastisement It's um, used of Israel in Judges 6 verses 36 and 40 and Psalm 72 verse 6 where it says that um, um, the rain shall come down upon mown grass. That's the word shorn there. So, sorry? It is the word fleece, yeah. It's the word fleece. Um, Psalm 72 verse 6. Judges 6 verse 36 to 40 and Psalm 72 verse 6 so you've got a word that Judges 6 36 to 40 Psalm 72 verse 6 so we've got two words which have their special reference to Israel in fact if you want some quotes for Mount I was going to give these to you later but when we get to this chapter but you can write them down now Isaiah 30 verse 17 and Jeremiah 17 verse 3 that word mount is used of Israel Um, Isaiah 30 verse 17 (coughs) Jeremiah 17 verse 3 so amazing isn't it how that it's so specific between the two sections of the book it adds words in the Jewish section that would be inappropriate in the Gentile section while we're in chapter 4 Verse 4, thy neck is like the Tower of David. David. No no problem with identifying that with Israel. Do you know what the bride of the Jewish section is called? Chapter 7, verse 4, she's like the Tower of Lebanon. Gentile. Pardon? Gentile. Gentile. Yeah, the Gentile bride in chapter 7, verse 4, is like the Tower of Lebanon. So again, the specific difference. This one can be to to be linked to David. The other one is linked with the Gentile city of Lebanon. So again, the 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 words are very specific. Uh, While we're in that fourth chapter, uh, verse nine, fourth chapter of Song of Solomon, and verse nine, this is a beautiful one. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister spouse. You'll notice that the word my is not there my sister spouse she's not only a spouse she's a sister now that could only apply to Israel couldn't it because they're the only ones related to Christ he was Jewish they were Jewish that's used three times in the Jewish section but what does the Gentile section say well look at chapter 8 and verse 1 this is the Gentile bride speaking look what she says chapter 8 and verse 1 oh that thou wert my brother other words, she says in simple English, I wish you were my brother. So he can talk about the first bride being his sister, the second bride laments that she's not one. She says, I'm not your sister, but I'd love to have been. And so that she laments that she's not related to, to him by birth. So very specific again. All right, so we've picked up some of the Gentile ones, but let's pick up a couple of others. The Gentile section starts in chapter 6 or it starts in chapter 5 actually but emphasised in chapter 6 when the call comes in verse 1 that where is thy beloved that we may seek him with thee that's a call going to the Gentiles now verse 8 of that chapter notice how many how many um, 
uh, virgins there are, there are three score queens and four score concubines. Two times seventy. Seventy, of course, is your number of the Gentiles out of um, Elam. Uh, Elam, it's for seventy palm trees. Here is two seventies. Why two? Anybody got any ideas? Somebody might have heard it at the Exor at Tetra Gully a few weeks ago. Who's saying something? No, you are. 140. 2 times 70. Two, 3 score and 4 score. 2 times 70. 140. Alright, 140. Okay. But emphasised in that it's 3 score and 4 score. If you take 30 and 40 at 70, twice that is 140. Alright? So... It's, um, it's uh, two lots of 70 that's emphasised there. Now, if 70 be the Gentiles, why double Gentiles? Any suggestions? Well, the Gentiles are in two classes, aren't they? Because out of the three sons of Noah, there was Shem, which is the Jews, there was Ham and Japheth, of the Gentiles. They're a double set. You see, that's why when the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching, he went first to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch because there's your Hamites, and then he went to to Cornelius, then went to Cornelius, or Paul went to Corne- Peter went to Cornelius, which is the Japhethites. So the order was Shem, Ham, Japheth. That's the way that the call went. So while Shem are one family, that's the Jew. The Gentiles, who are not Shemites, uh, are two classes. They're the Ham Hamites and the Japhethites. So it's applicable that they should be double. They, she's later mentioned again as, as a double bride. I think I'll pick that up in a minute. Um, verse 11 of that same chapter. Here, here's two again. Um, verse 11 of chapter 6. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley. That word nut there is the word literally in the, in the Hebrew that means two-lobed, double-lobed. And they suggest it's the walnut because of that. But here again is that twofold aspect of the Gentiles which would be inappropriate in the Jewish section. There was Israel, then there was the out of the other two uh, uh, divisions, if you like, of the Gentiles, there would be the calling. And it's again in verse 13 because you see she ends up by, uh, the bridesmaids end up by saying at the end of that verse, verse 13, you're like two armies, Mahanaim, you know, the word that was Israel gave to, to um to the companies of angels two armies or Mahanaim and that of course again is appropriate that she's seen here in a double aspect um, Ham and Japheth chapter 7 verse 1 the bride or the Jewish bride my wife's looking at clocks again it must be getting close right. um, so, uh, chapter 7 and verse 1 it says in the Gentile section the virgins speaking, the bridesmaids, they say, you're a prince's daughter. Now, who was the queen of the first one? Who was the bride, we suggest? Pharaoh's daughter. A queen's daughter, not a prince's. So there's a lowering of lowering of status here. The first bride, the one that's referred to as identification with, with, um, with Pharaoh, was a king's daughter. But now when the bride's spoken of here, she's only a prince's daughter. So you've got, again, an a, a, uh, emphasis upon the position of Israel as against the Gentile. We have been called in, and therefore we only, in that sense, spiritually, are princes, are related to princes, not to queens or to kings. And we picked up the other one in verse 4 and verse 7 of that chapter. But in verse 13, 
of chapter 7. It's a wonderful statement is made of, by the bride concerning her privileged position. She says, The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee. New and old, where would we pick up those phrases? Of course, it's a reference to the new and old covenants. And when you talk of the new covenant, you've got to be talking of Gentile, because the new covenant involved Gentiles, the old covenant was Jew. Here is a woman who, who is proud that she's identified with both the new and old covenants. And we, of course, in that privileged position because we are called into Israel under the new covenant. So there's, there's a list. And as I said, that will be duplicated as we go through the book. We'll find that there are others. We'll pick out in, in words, particularly, and, and phrases that have a special relationship to Israel. Therefore, they're in the first six songs. Or they have a special relationship to the Gentiles. They're in the second six songs. So um, certainly in my own mind, when I did that little bit of a study... Um, I was convinced that we are on the right track when we talk about the dual aspect of this bride, that she is both Jew and Gentile, and there's the distinction made quite clearly in the book. The sixth song, particularly, as we picked out last time, shows that division. Now, just a couple of final comments. One is, we mentioned about Solomon and his writings on this subject, and I think it's important to write at the... I've got it at the front, at the top of my, um, my Song of Solomon... Um, the other two writings that are important by Solomon on the subject of marriage. The Song of Solomon here deals with the betrothal period, or for the sake of our young ones here that don't know old English words, engagement. So the Song of Solomon deals with engagement. So you can put Song of Solomon equals engagement. Psalm 45 equals the wedding. So there's no emphasis on the wedding in the Song of Solomon. You don't hear about them actually getting married. Um the wedding day is not particularly mentioned. They come together and next thing they're coming away from the, from the, from the uh, wedding breakfast. So the wedding is emphasised in Psalm 45, which is the psalm written about Solomon's um, marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, significantly enough. And then, of course, after betrothal, then the wedding, the next thing is marriage. And marriage is emphasised in Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31 beautifully deals with a married woman you know, again, we sometimes very goodly talk about, oh, that's the, that's the virgin bride of Christ. Virgin? She's got children. She's got a husband. She's got children. She's bringing up children. She's no virgin, but Proverbs 31. She's thus in the kingdom age. And while the principles relate to us now, that's our work in the kingdom age. And when we go out into the world looking after the nations, we're looking after our family. And so Proverbs 31 is dealing with us in the kingdom age, the married woman. So there we've got three writings of Solomon. This one deals, the one we're dealing with is Song of Solomon deals with the betrothal period particularly. Psalm 45 deals particularly with the wedding day and Proverbs 31 very beautifully deals with the responsibilities of marriage. Bring them together and you've got the whole picture presented by Solomon. Finally, the linkage with, with Hosea. Well, it's a very simple link with Hosea. Hosea is the book, of course, where Hosea goes and marries Gomer who was a, um, was a harlot and he had a child by her, Jezreel, a son by her, Jezreel, and then she went and played the harlot again and had two children in adultery, in the adulterous stage. And then God told Hosea to go and take her back again and to bring her back to himself and to love her with the love of Yahweh. Now, perhaps at a superficial glance, we say, well, there's got to be some connection because it's dealing with, with Yahweh and his bride. 
But you see, Song of Solomon isn't dealing with Yahweh and his bride, it's dealing with Christ and his bride, and there's the difference. You see, Hosea is dealing with natural Israel, not dealing with spiritual Israel at all. And there is no promise in Hosea of life eternal. The nearest it comes to is in, in uh, Hosea where it says that um, I will take away the sting of death from me. But it's in a, in a constitutional sense and in a national sense. The nation of Israel will, as it were, rise from the dead. But immortality is not promised in the, in the book of Hosea because it's not dealing with a spiritual bride, it's dealing with a natural bride. It's dealing with a nation who, back in the book of Genesis, were engaged to Yahweh, God of Israel. But when we come to Song of Solomon, we've got out of that bride a spiritual section whom Christ is going to take for himself. And that's the difference between those two books. So Song of Solomon has the spiritual bride, whereas Hosea has the natural bride presented to us. And um, so that's the, the um, difference between those two books. All right, I'm going to close it there and promise you next time we will get on to Song of Solomon. But all that, I think, is, is important to, to just see where Song of Solomon fits in, its importance, the importance of Solomon, just how important this book is. And uh, next week, God willing, we'll start on uh, Song of Solomon 1 and uh, start to unfold the beautiful story, uh, the, the story that is presented there by Solomon.